Coming up this week, off screen. Maggie Smith is the lady in the van. Corin Hardy takes us to the hallow. Sean Baker peels a tangerine. Russell Crowe and Amanda Seyfried lead fathers and daughters. Death Row inmate Nick Yaris tells us about the fear of 13. And Michael Fassbender is Steve Jobs. All those to come and more, off screen. This is... This is off screen. Off screen. latest film news and reviews. This is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So where are we going to start this week then, Case? We're going to start at The Hollow. Not The Hollow. Not The Hollow, The Hollow. <laughs> I got it right, Corin. I got it right. You got it right. Okay, so this is the uh, sort of feature debut, really, of Corin Hardy. As you say, you directed a few shorts. A few shorts before, I like, yeah. But this is the first big feature. It is. Uh, so this stars uh, Joseph Maul and uh, Serbian actress Bajana Novakovic. Mm. Yeah, got it. Good effort. Getting better with that. Um, as a young married couple who have... Uh, he is a sort of a botanist or a sort of tree surgeon of sorts. They've moved to a remote cottage with their young baby mm. um, on the outskirts of a superstitiously guarded... Irish forest, which the locals tell us, in based on law, you're not meant to trespass into the forest, otherwise you will awaken the hallow and it will come for mm-hmm. you. And, you know, there's a bit of child that's gone missing in the village in years previous, it's been blamed on the hallow, and everyone thinks it's, it's some of them think it's, oh, it's mindless superstition, some of them think, no, no, you don't go in there. But wouldn't you know it, no sooner has Joseph Maul discovered a, a new form of parasitic fungus in the forest, bad things start to happen. Hmm, here's a clip. Have I ever shown you a cordyceps? Probably. It's the Trojan horse of parasitic fungi. Go see this. This little beauty. It spores and can penetrate the skull of an ant to control his mind. That's disgusting. It's amazing. It gets inside the nest. Jumps his spores over the entire colony, creating thousands of little fungus controlled automatons. Fine, fine, Dr. Attenborough. Just don't go bringing any of those in here. So, Joseph Moore, uh, Bayan Novakovic, there uh, explaining said fungus to us and uh, <laughs> not enough funguses in films well I, I think because Super Mario Brothers kind of ran the oh, gambit yeah. on, on the fungus in cinema if we're honest once you've heard mm. Dennis Hopper sort of fawning it, over it, fungus it killed Nintendo in films and funguses it, it did it did we, we, we only pay attention to Nintendo we never think of the, the poor unfortunate fungus <laughs> so um, so this is a quite a contemporary uh, tale with sort of classic Irish fairy tale aspects in there, it has that dark. I mean, initially, when it when it's leading into the sort of the plot aspect of the Hallow itself, it feels like the kind of thing Del Toro would have thrown out once upon a time. Mm. You know, I, you know, Irish Celtic fairy tales. It and, sounds like um, one of the films that he would be a producer of. Very yeah. much so, and you can actually kind of imagine that. Now, one of the things you need to say straight off the bat with this film is when you get to the end credits, there is a, a very sort of loving thank you on the end. This film is a thanks to Stan Winston, Rick Baker and all the uh, Harryhausen oh, nice. all the effects yeah. wizard now the reason I point that out is because that is the defining triumph of the film it's all animatronics no way so much in the way of animatronics and puppetry and the creature design is interesting it owes a debt mm. to something like uh, The Descent you know, yeah. the, sort of the, the creature design in The Descent I quite enjoy The Descent this is kind of like that but they're puppets right um, oh yeah, there I like is, that. and there is that quality, isn't there? Puppets can be mm. slightly more disturbing than again. That's quite a Del Toro, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, very yeah, very, do, so. very Del Toro esque. Though he's gone more CG in recent years. In yeah, especially in Crimson Peak. Especially in Crimson Peak. Yeah. I loved his ghost design with the bleeding smoke. Oh, thing. bleeding love, smoke! Love yeah. that fact. So um, Joseph Moore, but no coach, very very good as the uh, sort of married leads. Uh, you, you really do invest in they, they succeed in selling you on the reality of the situation and the reality of it is the part that you have to get on board with because it takes an angle very very early on and it sticks with it which is there is a science behind all this and then of course as the film begins to unravel Joseph Moore's character is forced to sort of question there is a great moment in which he says "Did you, uh, what, what was and she goes yes I saw it Okay, we don't need to discuss it. I saw it. It's just real. Yeah. It's just real. Let's just accept it. And you yeah, go, okay, cool. Fine. 
But I really like that they go into the angle of the fungus and they go into the, and the <clears throat> virus and parasites and things like that. Mm. And it's a really clever way around it. Narratively, it's not going to set the world on fire. There's nothing in here that you haven't seen before. And it does go A to B to C. And sure. it, yeah. you will predict it. I could put mm. this, you, I could ask you to write this based on a few plot points and you'd come up I'd with come the, up the same screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. But Corin Hardy's design is what really makes it work. His visuals are terrific in tandem with his love of the effects, and he has a very visible love of this field. Uh, He's written the screenplay as well, which, as I say, it it ticks all the right boxes. It does have that that great sense of, we're all about science, we're all about science, screw it, this is real, this is happening. And and I really admire (laughs) it for that. Like I say, it's not going to set the world on fire, but it's a damn fine horror film, and it's a great sort of feature debut for Corinne Hardy. I was a big fan. Cool. And obviously, I think it would work for you as your. Uh... Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, so, okay, I think we should talk about the crow just a little bit. Okay, let's, let's do our film news on the crow. Though. Okay, so um, do you do you think he's going to actually make this film finally? Well, is it going to happen? He's locked into a holding deal now. He is in a holding since deal since relativity yeah. went down. He's locked in <clears throat> now into a holding deal. Yeah. He has to direct. And it. Apparently, they have a March uh, shoot date. We're going to start in March. Yeah, well, so, I'll believe it when I see it. But <laughs> it's one of those films, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's one of those films. I'll believe it when I see it. It's like Tron <clears throat> Ascension. I will just mm. believe it when I see it. Yeah. So let's carry on with uh, Fathers and Daughters then. Mm, yeah. Uh, which uh, stars uh, Amanda Seyfried and Russell Crowe, and it's directed by I'm trying to remember his name, Gabriel Machino. Are you aware of Gabriel Machino? What has Gabriel Machino done? Gabriel Machino brought us The Pursuit of Happiness. And oh, that saccharine yes, pilot. Yes, that saccharine yeah. one, yeah. And, of course, Seven Pounds, which you might remember better as uh, the movie Ugh. which contains Suicide by Jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah. So That's, It's damn unique. you got to get that. Yeah, yeah, you got to go with Suicide by Jellyfish. That is a unique one, yeah. Does, does Will Smith pop up in this No, he well? does not. Uh, Although I think okay. the film really would have benefited from a uh, Will Smith-driven, uh, parentally-approved rap song at the end. Although I think most <laughs> Be films... good to your mum. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, funnily enough, that takes us to the plot of Fathers and Daughters. Nice segue. Yeah, which begins with uh, Russell Crowe, his wife, and their young daughter uh, driving one night. Russell Crowe and his wife are having an accident. A car accident ensues, and the wife is killed. Russell Crowe, who I should point out for the purpose of this film, is intended to be a writer, a novelist. Yes. Um, decides he's going to carry on, he's going to raise his daughter, but he's struggling with physical after effects from the accident. Uh, give it, he's got a, a neurological imbalance which is causing him to have seizures and the mm. like, and he may have a full uh, psychological breakdown. And uh, he elects to put himself into a care facility for a prolonged period of time to make, basically to recover so he can look after his daughter properly. He leaves his daughter with his wife's uh, sister and brother-in-law, who are Bruce Greenwood and Diane Kruger, respectively. Definitely a safe pair of hands. Definitely a safe pair of hands. Except, of course, as we established very, very early on, Diane Kruger likes a drink, and Bruce Greenwood is the world's sleaziest attorney, in a way that only Bruce Greenwood could be. Yes. So He's Admiral Pike. Exactly. In the meanwhile, uh, Russell Crowe comes out of his care facility seven months later, only to find himself in the middle of a custody battle with his... A former sister-in-law and brother-in-law for mm. custody of his young daughter. But that's not all. Because intercut with this, we have another timeline. We have, this is all in 1988, we also have 2015, when Set Girl has grown up to become Badum, Amanda Seyfried. And Amanda Seyfried, you see, has she's a social worker, and she's mm. uh, she's emotionally detached, and she's struggling to oh, form... Why? Yeah, exactly, because of all those daddy issues, you see. Mm. She's struggling to form emotional connections of her own, and she starts dating Aaron Paul. Like, that'll help. And uh, <laughs> You've seen Breaking Bad. I've seen Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad or Breaking Bad? <laughs> That's right. uh, yeah. <laughs> Either way, here's a clip. Those seizures are the sign of something serious. You need treatment. I can't do that. I have a, I have a daughter to raise. And that's exactly why you need to. You're going to go and stay with Anne Elizabeth and Uncle William? Back as soon as you can. I love you, Katie. <laughs> Please, drive. You're sick, Jake. Daddy? You spent a year in the hospital. Your last book tanked. We live in the United States of money! I'm doing the best I can. We'd like to adopt Katie. Katie is my daughter. 
So, like I said, once you've chosen to end a movie by suicide by jellyfish, uh, your sensibilities are somewhat out of whack to begin with, and that's just about the only explanation I can find for anyone directing this piece of crap. And that's putting it politely. Um, I'm going to quote uh, the great Alan Frank, uh, who I, yeah, I have his full blessing for this, um, to describe uh, Fathers and Daughters as the sort of film that if you were shown it as an in-flight movie, you would go for a walk. And... <laughs> Yeah, it has this turgid screenplay oh. by a first-time writer, and boy, does it show. Because I think this first-time writer... First and last. First and yeah. last, hopefully. Uh, Brad, Den- Brad Desch, I think his name is, he, he seems to have based his, his repertoire entirely on Lifetime movies. I'd say, it sounds like one of those films that play on Channel 5 at, like, half three in the oh, afternoon. Oh, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So totally. Absolutely. But with Russell Crowe. With Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe's doing this thing where he's, he, he does a convincing seizure, and then he does some beautiful... Beautiful mind style bouts of novel writing, because mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and uh, Amanda Seyfried, he's pretty good. He's he's fine. He's also and Amanda Seyfried is fine as well. <clears throat> However, the film is not. The film is not fine. The film is not fine at all. Nothing about the film is fine. It, it, it is woefully... It's shot like a Lifetime movie, mm-hmm. and it's that thing that Lifetime movies do, where whenever it gets really dramatic, it goes a bit shaky cam. Oh, you, you know that God, thing. Yeah. There's a moment in Chasing Amy, famously, in which Kevin Smith did it, mm. and and you, I know the bit. Yeah, you know yeah. the bit as well, and mm. it's really manipulative and amateurish, and you just ugh, you know. The, the, it's it's got those moments in it. So the dialogue is so bad. Russell Crowe at one point reading from his own novel is funny. It, that, that's the thing. The emotional beats of the story are laugh out loud funny, and I'm not mm. saying that derogatorily. I mean actually laugh out loud. An audience. I sat there and watched this with an audience of critics who genuinely laughed out, laughed out loud. And that's the kind of film it is. Uh, I love you more than anything. The <laughs> world. Yeah, 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 okay, pal. And everyone's laughing. Mm. You know, it's it's so uninvolving. Um, it's then got this really hilariously overblown melodramatic score. Of course, by, it does. Paolo Buonvino, uh, I think his name is. And what has he scored before? I didn't even bother looking it up to be honest. It's it's just so bad. Probably scored a Lifetime movie. Uh, probably did. Yeah. Um, you kind of hope that Diane Krieger was given actual booze for her scenes because <laughs> I think she she's earned it. <clears throat> and Bruce Greenwood is so so better than this. Yeah, um, he, he's he is in a lot of. Crap. Yeah, what a yeah. crap. Like a bad word. Just, I mean, I think the worst... Yeah. I, think, I think probably the it's best... a great actor. Just, yeah. The best thing I can say about this is that my mum would love it, but that's not really high praise. My mum no. eats up Nicholas Sparks adaptations like they're M&Ms. So... <laughs> We've got another one coming next year. <laughs> we have, haven't we? The choice, yes. I believe. Mm. Uh, no, this is the least involving film from a director who brought you £7. So take from that what you will. Um, let's see. It isn't worth your ticket money at all. If it were a father, it would be the kind of father you never called. If it were a daughter, it would be a daughter you put up for adoption. And as a film, it would, it's a film you shouldn't give the time of day to. End of. So, a bit of film news? I think we need it after <laughs> I think that. We've earned it. We've earned one. Oh, uh, Bong Joon Ho. Snowpiercer's. Oh, yes. Right. Okay, first of all, Snowpiercer's going to be a TV series. Yeah, that, which is great. I'm, I'm fine with that. I love. I will take oh, all Lord. the Snowpiercer in the world. Yeah, happily do it. But uh, have you heard about his monster movie? I have. How do you pronounce it? Is it Oakja? Or I've Oak- been. Oakja? I've been saying Oakja. Oakja. So this is going to be a monster movie with Tilda Swinton, with Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. and Paul Dano. How awesome is this? This is going to be. I love great. all three of those actors. I think this could be good. I yeah. think this could be, and it's from the director of Snowpiercer. And I don't think anyone could call Snowpiercer badly directed. Is it, is it going to get a UK theatrical release, though? Well, if we're going we'll with see. the Snowpiercer model, where it still hasn't... Then... Just just put it on Netflix. Let, let, <sighs> let, let Netflix have the rights to it. it. It's on US Netflix. Mm, it yeah. is on US Netflix. Because so, that was the only way I ever got to see it with the subtitles on. I, I watched it on US Netflix. Oh, did you love it? I did love it. I did love it as well. <laughs> it's going to be film. It's probably going to be film of the year in whatever year it gets released. Mm. So every November I, uh, I start looking. But uh, alas, maybe next year will be the year. We maybe. Never know. We never know. So, should we cleanse our palette with the top 10 then, guys? Oh, yes, so please. Let's do it. Number 10. The Last Witch Hunter. Which I think if it's a number 10, I think we can safely say with some authority, it's probably going to be gone next week. Yeah, we won't be seeing him for a while. Not until. Fast 8, I Fast think, 8 yeah. or Guardians. Or... Uh... Oh, when does, when does Triple X 3 come out? Triple X 3, that's, the, that's next, date, next the next level. The next level. I don't know. I'm sure the next thing he's in is going to be Guardians, surely. I think so. 
No, no, it's it's Fast Eight. Fast Eight is, is the next before? thing he's in. Yeah, Fast Thing's the next thing. Oh. Fast Thing is the next eight. Fast Eight is the <laughs> next thing. Uh, no, so got a, last which under those, it's it's disposable sci-fi channel sort of trash, but it's enjoyable trash, you know. And Michael Caine should know better, but you know what? He started in Jaws: The Revenge. I think we've established it, it, he it bought do, him a new house. Jaws: exactly. Revenge. Exactly. He will do anything for money, and who's yeah. going to begrudge him? He's Michael freaking Caine. <laughs> Number nine. Paranormal inactivity, the ghost dimension in 3D. It's almost out of the chart and out of our out lives. Out of our lives forever. forever until the reboots. Until the reboots in what year are we in now? In 2015, it's 2022 at best. I would say even sooner than that. I'd say even sooner than that. Yeah. Uh, the 3D actually works really well, but you know what? It is yet another disposable uh, paranormal activity movie with next to no production value beyond the renting of a house, which I must say, if, Hammer, if the original Hammer guys were still around, they would admire them for. But uh, no, it's just nonsense. I mean, it's complete <laughs> crap. But it is the most entertaining of the paranormal activity movies because they do get increasingly better. Just, you know, there hasn't been one above the level of poor so far. So, yeah. Number eight Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. It's a brand new entry. Well, let's see. It's a horror comedy that isn't mm. particularly scary, it isn't particularly funny, and its female lead is a stripper. And this mm. is, yeah, I mean, it, it does what it says on the tin, to be fair. I'll give you that. It does what it says on it's the tin. It's got the most ominous title. Yeah. I do appreciate that. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and I think, to be honest, if, if you're going to drop money to see The Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, rather than doing the smart thing, which is waiting about 25 minutes until it turns up on Netflix, mm. um, then I think if you're the guy who will drop that money, you'll probably get what you've paid for. Which is, you know, there is some scouts. There, there are some scouts. There are some zombies. Uh, it's, it's, it's a guy. There's some it. boobs. Yeah. There's some boobs and there's some blood. What more do you need? And yeah, I can't really sell it much. I will tell you what you need. You need a copy of Cooties on DVD. Exactly. That's exactly what you need. You need Cooties on DVD, uh, which is a much, much better experience. Number seven. Suffragettes. That's going down slowly, though. It is. I, f- I think it's definitely got some likes. Well, I mean, I, I think, to be honest, it's going to float around until awards season. Because we've got BAFTAs first, haven't we, after Christmas? Uh, yeah, it's always BAFTAs yeah, first, so. yeah. Well, I think it'll have more traction for BAFTAs, obviously, than it will anywhere I've, else. Maybe, maybe Globes, but we'll yeah. see. I think I'm surprised actually. It's made less of a splash in the US than I would would have expected. But these films kind of always do, and then they rear their heads again around, around the that time, time. Yeah. when all the screeners have popped up. When all the screeners yeah. have popped up, and I think Meryl Streep's cameo will see her net her award for the year, and Kerry Mulligan may get Best Actress. I, th- I could see that happening. Maybe get a nom. Yeah, Maybe I, get I, a I don't think she'll win. I don't think yeah, she'll win, but no. I think she'll get a nomination for Best Actress. That's certainly possible. Maybe mm. uh, I think Meryl Streep for Best Supporting. Even though it's what what about cameo, but... um, what about Anne Marie Duff? Is she in it enough to warrant that kind of traction? Because I think she's a great actress. No, but... Anne Marie Duff could very feasibly get yeah. Best Sporting Actress, oh, but yeah. I uh, and I do think she is terrific in it. But do you really think they would deny Meryl her, her annual? Oh, of course, not. her annual of dress up night. That's oh. it. <laughs> Do you think Meryl Streep just puts it in the calendar now as default? Like, I'm busy yeah. on that night, I have to go and get an Oscar. Well, she's got people to do that for her. Yeah, oh, she does, yeah. Yeah, we forget. So, But no, Suffrage, I did really like it, and I love the cinematography, and I love the style, I love the writing of it. And I like Brandon Gleeson in it quite a bit as well, who I don't think gets enough credit for the film. Number six. He's still there. Mr. Mark Watney. <laughs> Mr. Mark Watney's still there. Well, Sol 192. <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if he stuck around for four years? <laughs> That'd be great. That, that would be the rub. That would be, wouldn't it? So The Martian, which... I, I, what is left to say about What's it? left to say? I mean, I will say this about The Martian. Um, I, I keep just talking to people, you know, just friends of mine, like, daily life. I mean, you and I had the conversation this morning, guys, hmm. in which people just like, oh, yeah, The Martian was so good. It was so much fun. It was so enjoyable. And it is. It's so fun. It's so tense. It's yeah. so gripping. And it's likeable and charming. And you get Sean Bean saying, you're a bloody coward. And I love, I that, love that. That's my favourite bit of the whole thing. I mean, if anything, it gives people from Yorkshire like hope and aspiration they need to get a job at NASA. Which is <laughs> great. Exactly. That's what I need from a film. Oh, so cinematic universe time. Because, you know, we've got to have mm. a new cinematic universe every week now. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, so Call of Duty. That's, that's our next one. Is that going to be a new shared cinematic universe? Our, our cinematic universe, yes. Activision which, which studio is bringing us this? Activision Blizzard are the studio. They are, there is no studio. Really? Activision Blizzard are worth so much because of this video game franchise that they can genuinely fund their own movies and then just find a distributor after the fact. Crazy. Now, on the on the on one hand, that is kind of 
shocking. But on the other hand, that's actually brilliant because think about it. That means Mm. no studio interference whatsoever. The people who make the games will determine if the movie is good enough for them. Which you think actually that's kind of kind of good. Because could you imagine if Sony weren't involved in the Resident Evil franchise, what those movies would be like? Great. So, I mean, Call of Duty, which is this... I actually try to imagine Sony not being involved in a lot of films. <laughs> <laughs> They're due a win, a Sony. Yeah. But, uh, yes, yeah, so Call of Duty, we don't know which one we're going to get. Are we going to get the World War Two chapters? Are we going to get Modern Warfare? Are we going to get the Black Ops series? Who knows? Because I think Black Ops 3 is currently out, isn't it? That's, so, the, that's the big release. That's the big one at the minute. But, uh, okay, one more then. Um, <laughs> Judy Greer is going to be making her directorial yeah, debut. Yeah, I heard about this. A Happening of Monumental Proportions, it is entitled. And ah, it will star okay. our personal favourite, our shared favourite, Miss Alison Janey. Oh, CJ. <laughs> CJ's going to be in there. But she's going to be starring alongside Common. I, I love Common. I Common's think, great. I can't think of a way to jazz up the saying no. of Common. I love that uh, the goalkeeper for the United States uh, World, World Cup football team looked exactly like Common. So every time, Yeah, every single time I was watching one of their games, I was like, look, it's Common. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Well, there you go. I've learned something. Here. So shall we, uh, shall we go on with the lady in the van then? Yeah, uh, Miss Maggie Smith. Miss Maggie Dame Smith. Dame Maggie Smith. Dame, Dame Maggie, Maggie Smith. Smith. So this is uh, based on the uh, the play and the novel by Alan Bennett. The mm. screenplay for the film is also written by Alan Bennett. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. And it stars that. Alex Jennings as Alan oh. Bennett. And he, he does a brilliant brilliant Alan Bennett as well (laughs) so this is based on the story the true story of a a sort of unlikely tenant that Alan Bennett had for 15 years from the mid 70s to the late 80s and uh, she was Miss Shepherd Miss Mary Shepherd she's played here by Maggie Smith and basically she was a homeless lady who lived in a van who needed a uh, she had no fixed abode she had no fixed address Mm. so she, she agreed he agreed to let her park the van on his driveway in which she lived for a decade and a half (laughs) and over the years of course he became sort of an unlikely carer for her a sort of begrudging friend if you will Hmm. Uh, but she wasn't the easiest person in the world to get along with as you'll hear in this clip you're not St John are you? St John who? St John the disciple whom Jesus loved no the name's Bennett oh well if you're not St John I need a push for the van it's conked out. The battery, possibly. I put some water in. It hasn't done the trick. Well, was it distilled water? It was holy water, so it doesn't matter if it's distilled or not, because the oil is another possibility. That's not holy, too. Holy oil? Well, in a van, it would be far too expensive. Now, I want, I want pushing round the corner. Now that's the first meeting between the pair of them, and you can tell she's kind of a little bit manipulative. With the, oh, I just need to go down the street. You go push the van for me, yeah. and of course, you know, being a good Samaritan, why wouldn't he? Yeah, he obliges. Exactly. So Maggie Smith, sort of typically on fine form here. Yeah. I mean, she's playing a curmudgeon. When does Maggie Smith not play a curmudgeon? Exactly. Well, that's her bread and butter. It is. I'm pretty sure. Oh, the O2, the O2 bills arrived. Get me a role as a curmudgeon. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's how it works now. I've got the damehood. Tell them I'll do it for fifty quid. Yeah. 50, 50 quid in a sandwich. I'll, I'll be fine. Those covers the O2 bill. For that's be quite a fancy sandwich from from like prayer or somewhere. Um, so you've got a great. And she, Maggie Smith's actually played the role twice in the past as well. Oh, she really? Did it for the radio, I believe, right. and on stage. Mm. And you can tell because she's so effortlessly comfortable in mm. the role, and it's but it is. This, this is quite an easy thing for her to play. It is. It's imagine. a perfect Maggie Smith role. It's great casting. It, it's one of those things, if you ever asked, if, if, you know, if an alien turned up on Earth and said, who's Maggie Smith, and you had to show an alien Maggie Smith's work, you'd pretty much pick the first Exotic yeah. Marigold movie, or this, <laughs> as kind of the perfect example of what Maggie Smith does. And then the alien be like, oh, yeah, the old <laughs> lady from Harry Potter. It's <laughs> Professor McGonagall. <laughs> Professor McGonagall, yeah, because we have that on Neptune. <laughs> <You know? laughs> those movies are big, man. J.K. Rowling showed up and tried to flog us at books. <laughs> then said she'd do spin-offs. Yeah. Um, so, and then you've got to say, Alex Jennings is a brilliant Alan, Alan Bennett performance. Yeah. But what they've done quite cleverly is they've written in this mechanism whereby he has two distinct personalities, one of whom does the living and one of whom does the working, and they communicate. So we actually get to hear his thoughts via him talking to himself, literally in the same yeah. room. Uh, you've got a great supporting cast, which includes Jim Broadbent, Roger, oh. Roger Allen. 
Oh, Roger Allen, yeah, really? Yeah, Roger yes, Allen. You know Roger Allen. <laughs> and uh, uh, James Corden, James Corden's in it, James I believe. Corden. Very brief very cameo, briefly. very brief Well, he's, he's got a full-time gig now, has he? Oh, he so. has. He's got, that, he's got that talking gig he does so well. talking gig, yeah. Uh, so, I say, you've got a great direction from uh, Nicholas, he- Nicholas Heitner, I believe his name is. Who, uh, what has he done? I didn't know after I've had. He's directed mostly, I think, plays and uh, okay. short films. Um, but uh, I think this is, this is an early film work for him. But uh, he's got quite a jaunty directorial style. He gets the sort of whimsy and fun of it all. And mm. it is quintessentially British in terms of its oh, of humour and cynicism yeah. and likability. And it's a very distinctly British film. It takes place on one street in Camden. Yeah, yeah. more British can you get? Really. Uh, you've got this really lively, lively score by George Fenton, which sort of peppers it up along mm. the way. And again, it, it all adds to the jauntiness of it. Is the best <laughs> way I can describe it. Um, it never outstays its welcome. It's quite sort of tidily packed into about a hundred minutes, and uh, it is very enjoyable. You will laugh. You you won't necessarily shed a tear, but you will be moved by certain. By certain moments in it, and uh, I say, go with it, go with it, and you will enjoy it. Is very much what I would say. With the latest film news and reviews, this is off screen. So we're back. What are we going to start with now, Mister? We'll start with a film shot on iPhones. It's called Tangerine. Well, that, that's funnily enough because this is how this film is going to be remembered. I believe is it going to be that one that was made that, on that an iPhone movie. And it says at the end of the that film, iMovie. Film. <laughs> that iMovie. Yeah. She says at the end of the film, it's all shot on iPhone 5s. Yeah. And, and edited using, I believe. Mm. Although I, I forget what that credit is. It's not uh, iMovie, I don't think. Or uh, is it the iMovie app, perhaps? Maybe. So Tangerine, which is uh, opens with the Duplass Brothers label. Oh, no. Does it? it does. And that, that, that reaction is exactly what I had. Oh, here we go. Mumblecore time. Well, no, because I love me some Mumblecore, but I, I've just heard nothing but bad things about this film. Really? I'm, I'm a big, big you've fan heard, of, of, J, of J Mark. I love me some bad things. I've heard bad things about it. No, I'm surprised because I didn't particularly like it, but everyone couldn't wait to fawn all over themselves for it. Uh, This is directed by uh, Sean S. Baker, and uh, you would expect standard mumblecore, given the Duplass Brothers Association. You kind of expect that. That's that's fair enough because that's what they're known for, really. But they they do go off the reservation sometimes, the the Duplass Brothers. Um, This is one of those more experimental vehicles. Uh, Sean Baker's able driven this kind of thing this is the story of two transgender prostitutes uh, Alexandra and Cindy literally Sin D D the latter D Cindy and um I think she, her actual name is Cindy Rella. I think that's just her name. And uh, basically, at the time the film begins, Cindy has spent 28 days in jail. She has just been released. It's Christmas Eve. And she gets out around about lunchtime and immediately overhears a rumour, what we've already told a rumour, that her boyfriend slash pimp, Chester, who's played by James Ransone from that horror sequel, is it? I want to say Insidious. Insidious 2. Let's say Insidious 2. You say Insidious 2. Um, she hears a rumour that he's been unfaithful and she sets out to confront him, which basically means we are going on a trip through the ins and outs of West Hollywood on Christmas Eve as she tries to find her pimp. Um, in the meanwhile, you also have another story, which is this Armenian cab driver named uh, Razmik, who has a predilection for transgender sex workers. He's a happily married, well, supposedly happily married man, but is basically funneling all of his earnings into funding his good times with our characters. We have a clip. I've been gone for 28 days, and you mean to tell me that he's been out here cheating on me with fish? Yeah. Do I know her? I don't know. I just know that her name starts with a D. It's something like Danielle, Desiree, Dee Dee. I don't know, girl. Give me your phone. It was shut off. I had to cover your rent last month. I'm trying to think how best to describe this film. And the closest term I can come up with is urban mumblecore. (laughs) You're going to coin that phrase. I'm going to coin that phrase. It's kind of of like fluffy suspense. Fluffy suspense. Urban mumblecore is what we're going for here. And that that term kind of describes Tangerine perfectly. It's been called a transgender revenge comedy. And I don't really... I think that denotes more of a comedic aspect than than is actually present. It is a comedically tinged art house tale about a pair of transgender prostitutes that's really the long and short of it mm. it is shot on an iphone so it's it's all shaky cam all the way through it has that sort of handheld doc- 
documentary style. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, because there's no lighting, it's sort of a bleached, you know, L.A. daytime kind of a look. And um, I can't escape the idea that in 2015, in you know, in November 2015, mm. given the leaps and bounds the media perception of the transgender community has you know, made, this feels strangely regressive. It, Is it really? It, it, it's strange. Although the characters are exceptionally well written, mm. it's the story feels strangely <clears throat> regressive. You can't help think, really? You've done this now? Yeah. Really? After everything? After We're back here. We're, we're back yeah. here. This feels so 2013. That you can really now let's say the strength of the film is the writing very much very much the case with the writing the characters are brilliantly defined they're very well developed uh, and the performances behind them fuel them terrifically um, I'm trying to have to read this name entirely it is Kitana Kiki Rodriguez who plays Cindy <laughs> and that wins uh, name of the week that wins name of the week congratulations Kitana I love that it's a more combat character Kitana it is yeah uh, Kitana Kiki Rodriguez who plays Cindy uh, really really sort of raw and unflinching and she's very much a character of um, all front very much character with it, with it, and you could imagine, given the whole transgender aspect of it, the whole the front is a very is a very important part of it. And of course, over the course of the day, the, the front starts to get chiselled away just a little bit, piece at a time, mm. as you start to see her soul bear through, <laughs> as her world just becomes just a little bit more exposed. Uh, you then got uh, Karen. Car- I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember how to pronounce this. His name is Karen Caragulian, uh, who plays Rasmic and. Um, he plays Rasmic really well as sort of put upon uh, character, trying to do the right thing but can't resist his own inclinations. Mm. Um, but his material is very, very thin when you stack it up alongside the girls' roles. And uh, he does a, a good job with it. He has this very earnest, very frazzled performance that you kind of admire him for. But it's it's a film that it's not going to entertain you at all. It will interest you. You'll mm. be interested, in it, but you won't really be entertained. And it, that for me is that for me that defines Mumblecore. To be honest, I've always had that with Mumblecore. I'm interested, but I'm not entertained. See, I generally am. It kind of it all hinges on the story, doesn't it? Importantly, it does very much. I don't think there's enough story to this. It is. No. It's it, as you have rightly said at the beginning of this. This piece is going to be known as the Vs. Be iPhone movie. That's it. That's what it will. Um, it has no multiplex heft whatsoever. Um, which it's, it's not that crowd. It's, it's it? not. It's not a popcorn movie. Let's put it that way. This is not going to get the popcorn crowds in. But it does thrive with interesting characters and its use of a very immersive sort of locale. I can't quite escape the notion, however, that the kind of person for whom uh, the, the the sort of West Hollywood transgender prostitute community um, is a daily sort of locale if this is the sort of world that you experience then odds are this isn't the kind of film you're going to enjoy anyway <laughs> and vice versa mm. I'm, I'm kind of struggling to, to figure out who this is for yeah. in a way but like I say it does feel very much like a film from 2013 and not a film from 2015 so should we do some film news before we uh, before we proceed then yeah I uh, think got we should do some film news and finish the top 10 I think um, so let's just go with Disney for a change, um, and this one, this one intrigued me. We're going to get into, you know the live action adaptations that are all the rage at the moment. Really, I didn't know if we were planning any. Really, there are more. I mean, I'm waiting for the Aladdin one because I want to know who the hell's going to play the genie in that one. Well, <laughs> uh, that's yeah, that's the next that's bit the of thing. News. Yeah. But, in fact, should we start with that? Let's, okay. That's a good segue. Let, let's let's start that. with that. Like one. we've planned it. Like we've planned it. Uh, so Robin Williams, it turns out, yeah. had a stipulation in his will mm. to prevent Disney from using any of his unused recorded material for the genie for any further Aladdin sequels. And apparently this is something Disney were actually considering. Disney were considering doing another Aladdin sequel yeah. using his unutilised recording. Because there were so many, so many shot on the cutting room floor that you could have he must done have another fourth or fifth. Yeah, well, he did. You can imagine. Yeah. Robin Williams would have improved. You just let him go for like a week. And just, you would, wouldn't yeah. you? Stick Robin Williams in a recording booth and just see what happens. Yeah. I imagine that was the... That, that was basically it. Then the animators had to work to that. Well, this is why we have so many weird pop culture references yeah. in Aladdin. <laughs> why is there a Jack Nicholson reference in Aladdin? Oh, I love that <laughs> But uh, evidently, Robin Williams did see this coming. He put a stipulation in there. There is a 25-year lock on any use of his material for any further movies. So Good. A good thing. Interesting one. Mm. Yeah. But this also leads us to Disney's next upcoming uh, live-action adaptation, 
Esmeralda, a yeah. female-led retelling of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Interesting. Notre Dame, Notre Dame. Notre Dame's the American Notre Dame college. Notre Dame's the American college. Notre Dame is the actual place. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. <laughs> like, you get Marlon Wayans in there, I think that's what you call <laughs> yeah. it. You get, like, Tracy Morgan. You get... Kevin Hart. Yeah. <laughs> it would work. <laughs> I want Kevin Hart oh, in a live-action fairy tale adaptation. You get, you get Sam Jackson to be a Count Judge Frollo. Kevin Hart yeah. as the genie in the live-action Aladdin. No, thank you. No, I would, I would no. watch Would you that. watch her? I, I would watch that. I would Pain not. in Blue would work. Couldn't be any worse than Shaq. I would rather paint him blue, but the blue paint be like proper hard industrial lead paint and then drop him off a cliff. I'm sure That's you would. Are you not a Kevin Hart fan? Not really. Oh, well, <laughs> us short guys, we stick together, you see. So, shall we, uh, shall we finish off the top ten then? Somehow? Let's do it. Number five. Bradley Cooper in Burnt. Which I didn't mind at all. I expected far I'm surprised. worse. I'm surprised. I expected far, far worse. Yeah. Um, I do think it's a really unchallenging, really by-the-numbers sort of kitchen-based dramedy. Mm. Cooper himself has done this for TV, which, <laughs> uh, you know, before as a series, Kitchen Confidential, and uh, which is infinitely funnier and, and more likeable than this film is. But... Uh, do you know what? It's got some good performances in there. Daniel Bruhl's always likable to see. Uh, Uma Thurman, you won't recognise anymore. She turns up and be like, who is that actress? Oh my God, that's Uma Thurman. It's um, Mia Wallace. It's Mia Wallace. Uh, but Bradley Cooper hasn't been this good in some time. I don't like Oscar winner, Oscar nominee Bradley Cooper because I find him quite a dull... I hope we never meet Oscar winner Bradley Let's Cooper. Let's hope not. I don't want to live in a world in which the star of The Hangover has won an Oscar. I really don't. And um, Leonardo DiCaprio has nothing. Exactly. He's got a Golden Globe. Number four. Should I say it or do you want to say it? Nibsy! <laughs> it's pretty good, kid. It's pretty good. <laughs> next week. Next week you can have Nibsy, okay? Yes. <laughs> next week. We take, I can play the Nibsy card. Yeah, we take it week, week by week. Who gets the Nibsy card? So, um, right, we just did The Martian for mm. number six and we said, what else is there to say? And what about is there to say on this? What else mm. is there to say? But on like, the opposite, opposite I mean, direction. It's really bad. It is really bad. I mean... Joe Wright is a much better filmmaker than this. This is his first big budget studio blockbuster for lack of a better term it really is and you can't help but wonder exactly what anybody involved was thinking it it changes the Peter Pan story into this sort of revisionist chosen one origin story which trademark you, trademark um, which you just think you know what we, we've been down this road with Spider-Man with Superman we don't need I mean we stopped just short of having James Bond do this at this stage <laughs> You know, James Bond was prophesied to be the chosen one who will bring about the end of Spectre. <laughs> you kind of expect that in this day and age. We're like, really, Peter Pan as well, and it's it's a film with its its internal logic is non-existent. Its external logic is just pathetic. Um, its performances are all over the shop. Everybody's everybody's playing to a different film. Mm. Hugh Jackman is starring in a different film to Rooney Mara, who's clearly starring in a different film to Garrett Edlund. And uh, and then you have Levi Miller, who does a good enough turn as Pan himself, but he's adrift amongst all these bafflingly mismatched performances. And then you've got Jason Fox's script, and I really hate saying his name name out loud. (laughs) Jason Fox's script... He does, royally. Which which he he royally names he royally self names and you know there's there's nothing more really you there's nothing positive you can say about them the first fifteen minutes perhaps are enjoyable you know the the, the sailing of the ship through the skies of yeah, London that's good the, but you can't help but think that the entire film has been crafted around this set piece mm. if you will it's it, it, it's the you can put it in the trailer it yeah. is it's the John Peters school of filmmaking I need a giant spider in the third act yeah. that's exactly how this seems to have been created and no not good enough nil pois nothing number three Brooklyn. Saoirse Ronan. Did you have a chance to peruse this one? No, sadly not. I've just been working every single day. I was going to say, did you see anything this last week? But no, I liked Brooklyn. Even I've been planning to. I like Brooklyn very much. I, I, it was a very charming, very endearing film. It solidifies, for me, Saoirse Ronan as the most underrated actress currently out there. I do think she mm. deserves what we, what we now have as the Jennifer Lawrence spot. But uh, I, I liked it very much. I think the uh, screenplay by Nick Hornby is terrific. And mm. I think his cast work very well off of that. Emily Bett-Ricards and Eva Burtwistle are slightly too comedic for the material. 
But uh, that aside, very solid, very rousing, character-driven romantic drama. Number two. And I've still not seen it. I think I'm just going to wait for Which Netflix one? to get it. Hotel Transylvania 2. No, really? I know. I just, every single Sunday, we go to the cinema and just get distracted by something else. Um, but yeah, I've heard fantastic things about it. I liked it very much. I, I, think, it's, I think it's about as good as the first one was. Uh, the first one is a movie that I enjoyed when I watched it, but I What's never really gave much thought to after the fact. You saw it and that was it? You saw it, you enjoyed it, that was it. A good time was had by all, went home and you know had had pop tarts you know that, that's, yeah. that's kind of it went home and had a pop tart yeah. have a coke and a smile you know? and then Hotel Transylvania 2 comes out and you know you go you see it you enjoy it a good time is had by all you go home have a coke and a smile and eat some pop tarts you know and that's it and then you know we'll have Hotel Transylvania 3 in a few years and we'll do the same thing all over again but it is kind of it's likeable and fun and charming in that way that the first one was it's nothing more nothing less it is sort of quintessential let's sort of poke fun at the Dracula myth but we'll do it in a kid friendly way and let's poke fun at Frankenstein we'll do that in a kid friendly way and, and the emphasis is on kid friendly mm. and it is a sort of meet the parents meet the fockers style inversion of the formula yeah but you know you kind of expect that from an animated sequel you know it, it, in the same way that you know Shrek went to A and then in the next movie Shrek will you know go from A to B yeah. it, it is exactly that and you, you get what you get from it what you put in if what you're putting into it is <laughs> I'm just going to sit and you know enjoy this the same way I enjoyed the first one then congratulations you will have the same experience if you weren't won over by the first one though this ain't gonna do the job this time around number one Spectre ah Spectre <laughs> which I do think is really awkward at times in terms of it wants to be gritty and real, it wants to be a Roger Moore film, mm. and it wants to have this almost Timothy Dalton-like performance at the centre as well. Yeah. And it, you know, these elements don't go together. Sometimes it's bloated, sometimes it's incredibly rushed. <laughs> I just I don't know how we manage it. It's, all, it's almost a bit, I don't know, commendable. I, for me, when I, whenever anyone asks me about it, the thing I always uh, come back to is I think the res- the ultimate uh, development of the B-plot, which is Andrew Scott's storyline, effectively, mm. is cowardly and lacks any of the sharpness or bravery of what made Skyfall, mm. which was the real-world bureaucracy. That's what made that aspect is, of Skyfall yeah. for me. And they have the chance to do something similar even, but darker, even darker Inspector, yeah. and they take the coward's way out mm. and uh, without going but into I, but I don't think that's anything against Andrew Scott as an actor. I think that oh, he, no, Scott's he works with that. He works, Scott's fine. Yeah, he does the best he can with that material, I think. Yeah. But I think the material is the problem, and uh, it's also a banefully wasteful film. I mean, it's the first Bond mm. film that's cost over 200 million, isn't it? Yeah. And when you see the film... Don't way we? over, way over. Oh, yeah. But when you see the film, though, you can see where they've spent this 200 million. But you sit and think, yeah. why have you done it, though? The opening sequence in Mexico has something... Well, has what looks like 20,000 extras in a square. Yeah. And you can't help but look at it and think, why have you gotten 20,000 extras when 500 will do? Hmm. And that's pretty much a, re- a recurring thing in, in Spectre. You, you keep thinking, why have you, why have you used three shots... For what is? Why you just got, need that one shot. Why have we got three shots of Bond's car pulling into a car park, and that literally happens at one yeah. stage? We've got three shots of Bond's car going because we all, we want to see as much as the DB10 as possible. That's why <laughs> we do, admittedly. But why? And this is the problem. The film is so overblown, so overcooked, yeah. so overhyped. You just think. No, because what made Skyfall was it was a stripped down, it was lean, hard as nail. Yeah. Yeah, lean, that's yeah. the term. All right, it borrowed a certain section from The Dark Knight, but aside from that. And from Home Alone. And from Home Alone, yeah. But it was a lean, stripped down, functional film, and that's why Skyfall was as good as it was. Spectre is the complete opposite direction. This is very much having your cake, eating it, and then chucking up on the audience to boot. And. No, I mean, and this is before you get to that really weird, supposedly Lovecraftian yet strangely hentai opening sequence. Oh yeah, <laughs> complete, complete with nauseating theme song. And yeah, although I will, I never thought I would say this, but it's growing f- on you. It's not growing on me, but I do think the the visuals work with that song. I would, I kind of enjoyed the song more I with will, those visuals. I will give you, I'll give you that. Yes, the visuals do work with that song. But it's still it's pretty still turgid. Out of place. It's not living let die. It ain't living let die. This ain't even Moonraker. <laughs> so should we do another bit of film news before we uh, before we uh, proceed? Yes, let's do it. So um, have you heard about the Gamergate movie? We're going to have a Gamergate movie coming. Uh, yeah, uh, Scarjo. Scarjo is circling it. Have you heard who's making it? 
I haven't actually. It's going to be produced by Amy Pascal, former head of Sony. <laughs> is she still allowed to produce? <laughs> she's still allowed to. She's oh, she, not only is she still allowed to make films, she's booked up for about the next four years. That's crazy. She set up her own label called Pascal Pictures when she left Sony, and has she got she, an email account? Is she allowed uh, to use email? You, you would imagine she only communicates through WhatsApp at this time. <laughs> through smoke signals. <laughs> pigeons. 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 <laughs> no one can hack a pigeon. Fine. No one can hack a pigeon. That's done. Uh, but yes, yeah, so Zoe Quinn's book um, about the scandal is now been, the rights have been purchased by uh, Pascal Pictures, who are going to be producing into a feature length film with apparently Scarlett Johansson interested. So. We'll see what happens with that one. Uh, meanwhile, James Foley, who's the director of Fifty Shades Darker, mm. which is the upcoming second instalment of Fifty Shades of Grace or trilogy, um, well, it's been revealed that uh, he will, in fact, be shooting both sequels back-to-back, which might be for the best, because I think that bubble's kind of burst now, and it's a case of let's just get them done. Get them out. Get them out of the contract. Let's get them done before yeah. anyone forgets what Fifty Shades of Grey is, because... What was it, 2011, Fifty Shades of Grey? Something when it was like popular? that. I know the books are years older. But I don't really follow it. No. I, I, I just let it pass over me and watch better films. I, I tried reading it and then just gave up. I call it Dan Brown Syndrome. I just gave up because I was like, this is awfully written. I will not read it to the end. I will wait until Ron Howard makes it into a lackluster film. Yes, and I would love to see Ron Howard's Fifty Shades oh, of Grey. I'd love to see that. I would really Get Chris Hemsworth in it. No, no, don't, because in my house that would go down really, really well. <laughs> yeah. Time for the biggie then, Case. Mm. You've been waiting a month oh, for this. Oh, so long. Yeah. So, Aaron Sorkin written, Danny Boyle directed, Michael Fassbender starring, Steve Jobs is upon us. And this is based on uh, the, allegedly based on the book, mm. Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, which was pretty much the, the, the must-have on every coffee table about three years ago. Did you have it in your coffee table? No, I had it on my iPad. Which That's is, very appropriate. So, following the death of Steve Jobs, I think everyone had this book, yeah. because the book came out it was about three months after Steve Jobs. It was written mm. with Steve Jobs. He, he collaborated, obviously, with it. And uh, he was given sort of material that had never been sort of made available before. And so, you know, it was, it's quite an interesting and compelling read. Uh, I read it, fittingly enough, on an iPad in the gym over the course of about a week. Mm. But um, so we now have the film based on this, but rather than a straight biopic, what they've done, to quote everyone's favourite Steve Jobs marketing slogan, is think different. Even though grammatically that makes no sense to speak of. Something that actually does get brought up in the film, incidentally. So what we have instead is Aaron Sorkin's screenplay, which takes three takes its three acts and sets them each before a different Apple keynote. The first one is the unveiling of the Macintosh in 1984. The second is the unveiling of the next computer in 1988, I believe. Yeah, I think so. 1988. And the next is uh, the unveiling of the iMac in, is that 98 or, yeah. or 99? I can never remember. 98, I think. But his return to Apple yeah. either way. Fastbender plays Jobs, and uh, say before each act, as he puts it himself, it's like everyone goes to a bar, gets drunk, and then vents their feelings at me five minutes before I go on stage. And that is literally what happens. Here's a clip. We got 45 seconds. I want to use it to ask you a question. Why do people who were adopted feel like they were rejected instead of selected? I don't feel rejected. You're sure? Very sure. Because it's not like the baby is born and the parents look and say, nah, we're not interested in this one. On the other hand, someone did choose you. It's having no control. You find out you're out of the loop when the most crucial events in your life were set in motion. As long as you have control. I don't understand people who give it up. So, Case, you want to take a minute and hit this one? I loved this film. <laughs> as did I. I really did. Uh. So, I mean, I, I am a little bit biased because I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. Um, well, who isn't, though? I mean, Aaron yeah. Sorkin's a terrific writer. I think it was only uh, Studio 60, but I haven't watched You haven't fully, watched? Not I fully, love, anyway. I love Studio 60. Yeah. Big fan of Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitfield. And it's only one season, so I should really just do it. <laughs> and, yeah, it's basically two storylines. Yeah. But when, when it was announced, obviously, it was going to be a different studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to be with Sony. It was going to be with David Fincher. David Fincher was circling Christian Bale and Leo yeah, as well. I, I was... I was all on board for now, that. Now, I was as well. That's the film I really want, and I think we would have wound up with an absolutely outstanding film from that. What we have is a great film. What mm. we could have had was an outstanding film. I do think we could have had better than we got, Okay, but I think we got pretty damn good. Mm. And So I, I, I don't want to undersell it for no. that reason. I think in terms of looking like Steve Jobs, I think also Christian Bale 
he would have got that down. But that's, that is not the film they're going for. They're not going they're for that. They're not going likes. for that. No, not at all. No, which, I mean, which I really admire. And you go watch it, and yes, it is an Alan Sorkin film. It is a Mark Fassbender film. It is definitely a Danny Boyle film. Very well. much so. I do think, though, uh, Danny Boyle feels very detached here. Um, I think because you've got that big Michael Fassbender performance. I think he's a big performance. Mm. Because, obviously, Jobs is a big character. He's a big character, a yeah. larger than life I bet he had a lot of fun doing this. You would imagine he had to have. Uh, but you've got this big Fassbender performance, and you've mm. got Aaron Sorkin's script, which really owns the film. Mm. The film is the script. Yeah. And there's so much dialogue. I mean, you would love to see footage of rehearsals or outtakes from this because mm. it's so dialogue-driven and it's all monologues and it's all yeah. rapid-fire back and forth. Yeah. It's vintage Aaron Sorkin. It's everything you want. I counted, I think, at one page, it's six minutes before we get a walk-and-talk. <laughs> if you know your Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin terminology, we get a walk-and-talk walk walk. in six minutes because the film, frankly, needs them. Um, you've got, I say, Danny Boyle feels detached, I think, because of the weight of the Aaron Sorkin script and that big Michael Fassbender performance. So Danny Boyle seems to have taken a little bit of a step back. It's not quite as, as in your face. You whimsy. still see some of his trademarks. You see those kind of like yeah, classic Danny some... Boyle camera angles. And I think he's more, uh, he takes more of a sort of cue from, funnily enough, Apple themselves in terms of how they market, how they visually market things. Uh, Danny Boyle seems to have taken his uh, influence from that, which is <laughs> take a step back and simply admire the beauty of what we are showing you. Yeah. And he does that very, very well. I mean, he's great, even if he is, even even if he's only sort of functional, I would say. But his functional is better than a lot of other directors, <laughs> you know, full modes. Uh, you've then got um, a really interesting score as well. Uh, Daniel yeah. Pemberton's given this great score in which he seems to have calibrated his score specifically to the mindset of the Steve Jobs character. So when he's stressed, the score is stressed. Yeah. And it's it, much more frantic. It, it is, yeah. and it's really frenetic, and it's hurried, and, it's, mm. and you think, yes, this is what this needs, and it really, really enhances the atmosphere of the film. <laughs> Um, let's say Sorkin on absolute fire. Um, one thing I did ha- do have to give him absolute credit for is um, he's managed to work an element of humour into this script, a sort of nerd humour. There is a there is a joke in the first ten minutes of the film. I'm not sure if you had this experience when you saw it, when you were just laughing for the first ten minutes at things like, "What do you mean you can't get in the casing? What, what doesn't make yeah. how 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 we, what? <laughs> it's a machine. How do you not get inside yeah, it? And you start thinking anyone who's ever owned a spudger will understand yeah. this humour because it's the kind of thing that's still funny now in mm. the iPhone era. And it was funny then as well. There are some excellent funny comedic beats. I think a lot of it comes from uh, my man Mr. Michael Stuhlbarg. Oh, that's another thing as well. He's great. Michael Stuhlbarg is, he's clearly on a real ascent now. And yeah, look at it's about time. In this. It's about time. And he's very chameleonic as well. He, you don't know it's the same guy. Yeah, he's very much the fifth lead in this he, film. Very much so. Um, but we should talk about Kate Winslet as well, who I think... And Seth Rogen, of course. And, and Seth Rogen. Seth and Jeff Daniels. <laughs> Seth Rogen has less of a role than you would expect, given the character he's playing. But he does sell the relationship very convincingly. And I think that's what it needs. But I, there's, there's two very very kind of key exchanges between the two characters. Mm. One where it's kind of like middling and it seems like it's bubbling and then one where it just goes. Yes. <laughs> it's like a volcano and I love that when, when that relationship finally erupts you're like yes get yeah. it out of your system. Come guys. on Woz. Yeah. Go for blood. Go on Woz. Hit him. <laughs> yeah. he like, Go on Woz. Man up. Just hit him. The Woz. What a great nickname that is. I know. Hey do you know what he's still an entertaining personality today. He, I saw him on it was on uh, Fallon or something like was that. Was he? Yeah it was great. I love it. Every, I, I, every time a new Apple product gets launched I, I search the internet for Steve uh, for Steve Wozniak's thoughts I, I, I love it yeah. um, his thoughts on Siri to me were hilarious which is why have they say? made this <laughs> <laughs> which is, I don't understand why they've made it it makes no sense anyway so putting aside my own Apple nerdness the film is terrific its beauty lies in the elegance with which it's been crafted and there's something of a fitting uh, sort of something fitting about how elegantly the film has been crafted given it's about the creator of Apple you think mm. well if anyway if you're going to make a film about the man who basically pioneered technological elegance 
then yes, your film should be this elegant. And that's that's brilliant. That's a wonderful aspect to it. Um, it's irresistibly engaging. It is insatiably engrossing. It's a film that would work as well as a stage play as it does as a film. Yet, which is another Sorkinism. Which is another yeah. Sorkinism. And yet, Boyle's sort of functional way of, of filming it is such that you think, actually, yeah, but I, I kind of prefer the movie idea to, to doing this as a stage play. Um... There's certain liberties taken with the story, if you know the legend of Steve Jobs, which incidentally is something the film is very, very specific about handling. The film doesn't want us to regard Steve Jobs as a legend. It wants us to you know, concern him as a man. He is just a human being, and the film is very specific about that. You are watching the story of Steve Jobs the man. Steve Jobs the legend is who he is when he's off screen. Mm. You know, that's when he gets on the stage. That's behind when he's behind like, the yeah. stage, he is you just his character. Yeah, he is just the man. <laughs> uh, hence, all the references to you know. Okay, you have to tell us how you created the earth and things like that. And I like that about it. Um, say there are liberties with the story. He never, never met uh, John Scully after the boardroom, yeah. but uh, you know, and he meets him twice in the film afterwards. Yeah, it is. But, yeah. uh, but you see, the thing, okay, I can go with that because what you've done is crafted a compelling narrative out of it, and you've given it some emotional payoff, and that works. And you kind of, it's it's the kind of scene that you know for a fact Steve Jobs would have wished he'd had mm. in reality. You would have wished he would have wished he had those moments. And uh, the film plays them very, very well. It is a genuine triumph for Aaron Sorkin. If ever a film <laughs> will successfully sell Aaron Sorkin as the screenwriter to go to, I think this is it. So some more film news then to take us to the take us to the bridge. Uh, let's see what we go. Oh, Johnny Depp. We got to talk about Johnny Depp. Yeah, he is uh, voicing a character, isn't he? He is oh. voicing a character. And who is this particular character? Johnny Depp, of course, will be voicing Sherlock Gnomes <laughs> in the sequel to Romeo and Juliet. How are they going to blend Sherlock right. Holmes and, Rome, and Shakespeare? Have you, have you not uh, have you not heard the the plot synopsis? I have not. No. Right, Romeo and Juliet are in London. Uh, just uh, just as a series of gnome disappearances begins to take place, Excellent. and they turn to Sherlock gnomes to solve the case. Go for it, I say. You know, yeah. it's, it's bonkers or why not? It did pretty well, I remember, that, that first it, film. It did. I've yeah. never actually seen it, although I know Elton John is still producing the sequel as I well. I was working at the cinema when it was released, and I just remember getting a bunch of Elton John songs stuck in my head <laughs> for like... Three months. You mean you don't normally have Elton John songs stuck in your head? I rock them occasionally. Rocket Man's classic. Uh, so Annie Hall, Woody Allen's yeah. Annie Hall, has been voted by the Writers Guild of America to be the funniest screenplay ever written. Which for me just says that there is an entire room full of judges who've never ever seen Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> which uh, I mean, and if they'd seen Hot Tub Time Machine too, I would be shocked. Yeah, <laughs> I I would probably have it. I wouldn't have it anywhere near my top 10. I'd probably have it in my top 20. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's an iconic comedy, but sure, it's like the odd couple. I'd put Airplane. Yeah. Airplane, yes, yeah, I'd put like airplane, airplane. Yeah. I would make a case for the Naked Gun. I'm just, just saying, I would make a case for the uh, yeah. first Naked Gun. That for me. Put that over 10, I would say. Let's think. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's... You've got to think about lines that you can recite back, and there's only like. I don't know, one or two from my whole, but I could just think, and then I think of Airplane. Can I, can I be a Philistine and say, say Wayne's World? <laughs> you could say Wayne's World. <laughs> because that is one that's of... That's got iconic lines. Say, surely that's one of the both most of them, quoted both films them ever, isn't it? Yeah. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> it is such a quoted film. But I say yeah. this, I watched Brian May on an episode of Loose Women the other day, in which he talked... <laughs> I know. And he talked about, uh, talked about Wayne's World, which I, I thought that was... That is uh, the strangest segue you'll ever hear on this show. Yeah, yeah it is. I watched... Yeah. Watched, what that I watched Loose Women or that I watched Brian May on Oh Women. both. I was looking the fact that Loose Women is even on the show. My mother in law's just had surgery, I was looking after her at the time. Oh uh, <laughs> that all makes sense. Right, so uh, one final piece then. Brian De Palma has signed on to helm an interesting action thriller. It's called Lights Out. And it's going to be co-produced by the Chinese, uh, an outlet called uh, Hoist Pictures. And it's going to be about a blind Chinese girl who stumbles upon an assassination program, a secret assassination program, and has to become a hero to expose the truth and save the day. Of course she does. Of course she does. Apparently they're looking for an A-list Chinese female star to uh, to play the lead. So. Oh. Yeah. Get the broad from, from X-Men. The broad from X-Men. <laughs> 
What's the, what's the name? Fan, um, Fan Bing Bing? Fan Bing Bing, and then there's Bing Bing Lee, isn't there as well? Bing Bing Lee, yeah. There's Bing Bing Lee and Fan Bing Bing. I think Fan Bing Bing needs more to her name, I think, because at least Bing Bing Lee has the Resident Evil franchise. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, you know, Fan Bing Bing isn't, I don't think, going to be back in X-Men anytime soon. So she will be back something. in Apocalypse. Huh? No. So, yeah. so, final review of the week, then. Shall, yeah. we, yeah, shall we look at the Fear of 13? Yeah, let's do it. Right, this is a really interesting one. Mm. Um, this is... <laughs> This opens with a title card which says, um, Death Row inmate Nick Yaris uh, one day decided to phone the, the judges overseeing his, his various case and asked them to terminate all of his appeals with immediate effect and then demanded his immediate right to be executed. He was then interviewed and this is his story and that all facts as he has given them have now been independently verified for us as an audience so that we can be assured that what we are being told is the truth what we are then given is I think it's about 96 minutes of literally Nick Yaris on camera just Nick Yaris just him in a room on camera and a couple of sort of segue shots uh, mood setting shots interior of a jail and things like that mm. it looked like they've got the Ken Burns effect on a photo <laughs> kind of a thing um, so the story is what led Nick Yaris to be incarcerated how his life was on the inside his attempts to overturn his conviction and well the aftermath really here's a clip I've been an escaped prisoner for 25 days. I was on the binge. The next thing I know, there's a cop right there. Then you heard pop. I've been arrested enough to know this one's bad. I was thrown into this world. No sunlight. And it's deadly silent. So this is, a, regardless of anything else, this is a very fascinating, very compelling story. Now, I say regardless of anything else, what it does have is the one ace up the sleeve of any documentary maker ever, which is the subject of this film, Nick Yaris, might be the greatest orator you have ever encountered. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, to say he can spin a yarn, I mean, my God, really, the, the wool companies are phoning this guy up. He can spin a yarn <laughs> with the best of them. Um, right. He is a natural-born storyteller. He's also something of a strangely magnetic screen presence. Um, his, his telling of the story is uh, very insightful, very detailed. His way of describing things, although it can feel a little bit rehearsed at times, which is understandable given that this man has spent you know so long inside. You'd imagine he's rehearsed the story a thousand mm. times in his head. And that kind of shows when, because his, his level of off-the-cuff detail is very specific. Yeah, very detailed. Very detailed, to the extent that you're thinking no one has ever... You've been, you've, been this. This. <laughs> you, you've been writing this down, you know, with a biro on a toilet roll, yeah. you know, <laughs> to, to quote to uh, to reference V for Vendetta. There mm. was it a pencil on a toilet roll? Pencil. pencil. Um, so this is uh, by David Sington. I'm not familiar with the rest of his uh, rest of his documentary work, but what he's done here is he's set the stage brilliantly. He has allowed uh, Nick Yaris's own verbal story to drive the film, and he has merely supplanted visuals. He's merely just added the visuals, and what he's done is he's added some really effective imagery to it imagery I mean there's one piece of imagery to this which gets its own payoff towards the end of the film it gets an iconic full on arc of sorts towards the end of the film but what's really interesting about it is that it, it's not so much just Nick Yaris's story as it is it's this really uh, insightful sort of examination of life on the inside life in prison he tells a story about um, when drugs were found in the rehearsal room of the prison glee club and that, that glee club were put into solitary confinement with Nick Yaris Nick Yaris incidentally spent 24 years in solitary confinement on death row where you had to be silent all the time oh Maybe that's why his uh, his uh, storytelling yeah. storytelling is Good, so good. To keep you sane. That's how yeah. And he tells this beautiful story about um, two men who were lovers in the Glee Club, and they found out they were going to be split up, and they were going to be sent to different prisons, and how they sort of sang their goodbye. It's a really moving moment, and the film is full of these. Full of these just great sort of moments, which you don't get to see. You get some imagery, but they're not of the story. They are really, really well done. Um, as I say, Sington seems to understand 
that uh, that that Yaris's rehearsalism might be a bit of an issue, and hence the visual style. It sort of it removes that sort of the problem you might have with the rehearsed aspect of it. But like I say, that's understandable under the circumstances. It doesn't waste a single moment though, because you say it's about nineteen ninety six minutes, I think thereabouts. Mm. It doesn't waste a moment of its runtime. Its story, you would think, you would think that surely there isn't that much to this. But once it gets into the internal sides of, for instance, his appeals, which that's a whole horror story in and of itself. I mean, this guy should have a genuine top shelf drama produced about him because it's a very, very interesting story. Once it gets into that, you think, uh, "Wow, this is this is a water cooler documentary. This is the kind of thing that for, for many years, I think for a good few years, we're going to have Monday morning round the water cooler. Hey, I saw this great documentary on BBC Four last night, and I think it is. It deserves its place as one of those. I think definitely. Um, say it's he's probably the most profound documentary subject this year. I would say, really, I, I would say definitely above um, uh, Marla. Above Mar- well, that's the thing because with Malala, there is so much. There, there are problems with Malala in the, in terms of her own film. There are problems. Mm. Those problems are not present in the Fear of Thirteen, a title which, by the way, refers to. Um, he actually would just he would rehearse words. That's how he would pass the time. He would mm. just look up words, and one of them <laughs> is the word for trypodixia or something, whatever the fear of the number thirteen is. Okay, and that's, that's he can pronounce he it perfectly. Yeah, he can yeah. pronounce it perfectly. I obviously cannot. I <laughs> 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 so, say, Yaris himself is engaging. He's enthralling and he's charming. But he's all mm. he, as much as he is all those things. That's how that's how dangerous we're told he was. But you you make your mind up on that front for yourself when you see the film, and I cannot recommend highly enough that you do actually see the film but uh, put it this way I, it's uh, between that and Steve Jobs for me for film of the week okay um, I, think, I think Steve Jobs I, I'm going to give it to Steve I'm, Jobs I'm going to give it to Steve Jobs well lack of options exactly yeah <laughs> by by default but if if it was up against other films I would give it to Steve Jobs anyway well speaking of up against other films everything's up against one mm. film next week everything's up against Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 I thought you were going to shock me with something week. else then well we also have the documentary Steve McQueen The Man and La Man Next week, that one could be interesting. We have uh, Gaspar Noe's Love 3D, which uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could see okay. what comes of this one. Kate Winslet's back in The Dressmaker. Uh, Michael Ely is the perfect guy, apparently, and Mr. Calzaghi, which I confess I know nothing about. Just about Joe Calzaghi, I guess. <laughs> I would imagine so. <laughs> so, uh, this has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Stallcase Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com.